0: So, this week I'll be talking about Wabamungado, or Magonda, which means white devil in Abenaki. Okay. The white devil. So, we're uh, back again. This time we'll do another English story of imperialism, but this one has a distinct American flavor, and may possibly blur the lines between who should be telling the story, you or me, but... I think it's. Uh, I think this. Is, I think it's right that I do it. It's the heritage, right? Yeah. Um, it may be our shortest podcast, but I think I've I've left some room for discussion, both about the topic and also you know what our podcast uh, and imperialism is about in general. So I'm going to talk about the 1759 raid, or you know you could read massacre of Saint Francis by Major Robert Rogers. I'll get a little into the backstory um, about the French Indian War, about Major Roberts, and, and most probably most importantly, certainly most importantly, the Abenaki people. I think it's Abenaki. It might be Abnaki. I'm going to say Abenaki, and if I'm wrong, someone can tell me, and I apologize. Yeah, email us at interventionpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I texted a little bit about kind of my struggles in writing this. You know, I think I rewrote this story about three or four times. Um, and, and, and through my research of this, I, I've thought a lot about like what our mission was in, in starting this podcast. Are we, are we just trying to tell a historical story that is wrapped up in imperialism? Yeah. Or, you know, if so, I could just, you know, kind of go into the details of the French Indian war. Right. Um, and I will certainly highlight, you know, events that happened in the war and, you know, more specifically events that led up to the massacre, but I think doing so would like kind of get away from the intent for, you know, us starting this endeavor. Um, you know we're not historians we're just two guys of the same political leanings as I'm sure you've gathered if you've listened to our previous podcasts and we're interested in the effects on imperialism of, of imperialism on people and I think particularly indigenous and working people
1: absolutely yeah. yeah I think that's right and then to be able to like tease out you know, the history and how that applies to us today, and how, like, the legacy of imperialism, not to, you know, hearken back to that book, Imperial Legacies yeah. or whatever, too much. But yeah, like, so how does this history inform the situations that working people and indigenous people, particularly, face today? I think yeah. more than anything, because not much has changed when it comes to imperial policy. No, <laughs> not a mi- lot. Of,
0: I mean, you know, in particularly, you know, as you probably gathered, I'm going to be talking about Native Americans in this. Um, and, You know, their struggles certainly did not end after this, what we're talking about here. No, definitely not. And I've got a a little statement at the end about that. Um, And I think, you know, we're also interested in kind of like the driving force behind um, imperialism as well. And we kind of talk a little bit about that. You know, if I was to go into the history of the French-Indian War, I would just basically be retelling the history of two imperial powers fighting over land for prestige and resources. And there'd be little to no respect given to the actual indigenous people of the Americas that were so easily ignored and forsaken by the imperial powers that invaded their land therefore I've, you know I've, I've kind of decided to try and tell this story by posing questions and, and that may have been at the forefront of the indigenous Americas Americans when facing you know effective annihilation if they didn't pick an imperial master but I, I don't really know how well I've done that um but we'll see and I, I think there's certainly enough for us to talk about and and I think it's important to note that you know I, I can't And I haven't encompassed all indigenous peoples in this story. Yeah, Um, You know, they have their own distinct motives for their actions and they certainly did not act as a collective.
1: Well, I mean, if you look at just to that point, like if you look at like some kind of map with like names of different indigenous groups superimposed over the continents of North and South America, like the number of different peoples cultures yeah that existed here is absolutely insane so just to like reinforce the point that it would be impossible to tell a
0: homogenous story
1: describing all those experiences and That's things right. like that yeah
0: they're all it, it's they're different and as I said they all had their own distinct motives for their actions they didn't act as a collective and you know to treat them as one would be dismissive and disrespectful so mainly I'm going to be focusing on the Abenaki people um We've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but to try and get an accurate viewpoint of the Abenaki people at this time, at the time of these events is difficult. You know, their history was an oral history. Mm -hmm. Um, And most written accounts are taken either from Rogers' personal journals and publications. um, Not biased at all, right? Well, these are self-serving and aggrandizing. Um, He was known or at least believed to exaggerate his exploits. And therefore, you know, his account is questionable at best. Um, there's also histories written closer to the event by, I've got this in quotes, scholars such as Francis Parkman, who spent much of 1842 researching Rogers and whose work many colonial scholars based their research on. The problem with Parkman is that while doing a lot of research and obviously being well versed in in the time, um, his research displayed the privileges of a white Protestant Yankee and typically described Native Americans as simple savages. Um, And then, you know, kind of third is, you know, even histories written by opponents of Rogers, uh, like Francis Jennings, they carry their own racist agenda. Um, And even while being more critical of Rogers, the criticism is not about what he did to the indigenous peoples. It's more that Rogers exaggerated and his, you know, his um, exploits were not as grand as he made them out to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's why I think it's just so important to like, there's this phrase thrown out there it's looking at history through a decolonial lens, right? Yeah. So, like, having this acknowledgement that, like, this land and these people that were here originally are still colonized and still being colonized in a lot of ways, right? Oh, so no like question. You know, in, in some ways, like, this is a primary source, to, uh, one of the only primary sources that we've got or the only primary sources that we've got to go look at this. But that's why you have to take that lens of trying, like, hell— to sympathize with the indigenous people, right?
0: That's right. Um, So, you know, I do want to make a point that we're lucky to have historians like Gordon Day. Um, And he worked tirelessly. He took his tape recorder around the Abenaki peoples and recorded their histories. And a lot of that would have been lost. You know, it was their memories. It would have been lost to history if he hadn't done that. And also, you know, my main source for this is a book called White Devil by Stephen Brumwell. Um, and I think he does a good job in in trying to be sympathetic. Um, but at the same time, he's still a white guy, right? And so we we do have to acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, and just to pipe in there again, like the one book that I just read, it was it's obviously more contemporarily focused, but it's called the Jakarta Method. Yeah, and the author Vince Bevins talks explicitly about you know like the history of you know, colonialism and imperialism is what kind of almost set the conditions for, you know, white people to take the lead in writing history because, you know, more often than not, the conditions that they came up in permit them to do things like, you know, travel the world and write books and take the time to be historians. So in in a sense, it's almost like you're thinking about, you know, just the fact that white historians are leading the charge now is in a sense a product of colonialism and imperialism, right?
0: There's a saying like the victors write history. Right. Right,
1: yeah. But even guys that are sympathetic to it, just because like they inherently benefit from the conditions created by it, kind of have the ability more so than than any other group to really do that and undertake it, even if
0: they're sympathetic, right. you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and a, a lot of people, maybe not people that would listen to this podcast because it's an old film, but a lot of people who m- may know a little bit about this would probably know it from the, the movie Northwest Passage. So it's based specifically on these events, but, okay. you know, like much of Hollywood, it's not an accurate portrayal. It just paints Rogers as a hero and his exploits as, you know, as, as being, um, a, you know, a, a big turning point in in this war. Um, so like how John Smith was a good guy in the Poca- Pocahontas cartoon or something? Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, the, you know, I think a lot of issues I had with this are, um, you know, what was Rogers was he um, the butcher of a people, hell bent on just wiping them out? Was he simply a soldier following orders to the best of his undoubtedly considerable ability? He was a fantastic soldier, by all accounts. Um, and you know, he, you know, basically himself, kind of a slave to the imperial machine or a pawn, um, or was he a combination of the two? And as well as that, like, who were the Abnaki's? Abenakis, were they? Again, I'm. I'll get into a little caveat here, but were they? quote-unquote, savages whose cruelty deserved retribution? um, Or were they a people that welcomed outsiders of any race or gender? Or were they a people who were just trying to do anything to survive, and because of the fact that the land they called home was occupied, they saw it most advantageous to side with the French against the English? Um, These questions are difficult to answer. There's always gray areas. Um, Both parties carried out acts, and I think this is important, it would be seen as atrocities by modern eyes. Yep. But doing so ignores the cultural traditions, especially those of the indigenous Americans. Like I'll get into some of the, you know, scalping and, and, you know, they burnt people alive. They did all these things, but it was, it was just part of their heritage. And also like the burning alive, a lot of that was, you know, it, it was almost honoring their, their captives or the people they were killing. Mm-hmm. Um, so while again, modernized views that is is probably is barbaric um you you do have to have a consideration of of traditions and cultures and you know what what these people had, had grown up with right
1: also interested to hear about like which events precipitated a response yeah you know
0: so my final my final point of introduction is to again say that i apologize in advance for any words or phrases that are mispronounced or viewed as derogatory or offensive I've tried to alter language um, to avoid, you know, any any offense. But some may have slipped through, especially when I'm using quotes. Um, again, most of these written accounts are, um, are written by white historians. And especially, his, you know, older histories, sensitivity was not at the forefront of their mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, though, in using quotes, I think... In some cases, it helps to use the ori- original language just to further contextualize attitudes and how they change and things like that, but I'm sure you did your best with it, so yeah,
0: so the way I'm gonna kind of frame this, I'm gonna go through kind of a history of the Abenaki people um a little bit of a history of Roberts or sorry Rogers um, highlights of the French Indian War. I'm gonna have a little bit about these three guys, Amherst, Wolf, and Kennedy, which again. Something that happened there kind of precipitated like the ordering of, of this. Uh, I'll go into the St. Francis Raid, and then I'll have some points to close on. But that's kind of how I'll go through this. So, the Abenaki tribe or a Native American tribe in one of the Algonquin-speaking peoples. Uh, they lived in parts of Canada and the northeast United States until being pushed west during American expansion. Unlike some of the more powerful native tribes, the Abnaki were fragmented into different subsets. Uh, They were spread throughout the Northeast um, without any central leadership. After the first contact with the Europeans, they eventually began to merge uh, due to necessity. And their population was largely decimated by European disease and war. I'll get into that a little more. Um... They were spread throughout the northeastern United States and came into contact with English colonists when they began to settle the New England colonies. Um, As new colonists came into New England, many of the Abenaki relocated to Quebec while a small portion stayed in the colonies and traded with the English. So immediately there is, you know, a realization by by these people that the the whites aren't going to go away. Right, they keep coming. They need to coexist. They keep coming, yeah.
1: I mean... you hear that a lot when you get into this and i'm no expert but it's just initially you know maybe there was some thought about maybe they won't stay or maybe
0: it won't grow but i had to become a parent pretty quick yeah um this was not the Abenaki's first uh contact with expansionists in their native land prior to european contact the iroquois tribe was beginning to build their own empire and expand into Abenaki lands the confederacy right was- yeah The Iroquois Iroquois were an imperialist, expansionist culture whose cultivation of corn, beans, and squash um, created an agricultural complex and enabled them to support a large population. Um, They made war primarily against neighboring Algonquin peoples, including the Abnaki. Um, The Abnaki seemed to be able to handle the powerful Iroquois due to their own um, adoption of agriculture. And they were also able to support a large population and provide sufficient warriors for defense. So they were able to hold out, largely hold out. Um, they largely supported the French during the colonial wars. Um, they sided with the Wampanoag tribe during King Philip's war and then with the French during the French-Indian war.
1: Was the Wampanoag, was that the tribe that was like, I don't know <laughs> if this is apocryphal or not, was but wasn't that the tribe that was first, kind of contacted by the pilgrims off the Mayflower and everything?
0: I, I think so, but I didn't do a ton of research okay. into them.
1: Okay, that rings,
0: rings a, a bell, bell. for yeah. me. Same. Um, they showed, uh, you know, while they showed much courage and resourcefulness during the wars, they sided with the losers. The French. Yeah. Um, so this combined with two infectious diseases that ravaged their population, pushed them farther north into what was called New France, Canada. Okay. The French, you know, I'll get it, I'll I'll mention this again in a minute, but the French were a little more sympathetic and probably a little better than the English, but still they allocated two locations where the Apenakis could settle and live peacefully. So while they didn't necessarily treat them as subjects, they also weren't equals.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cause I think like the simplistic view that you get, like when you learn about the French and Indian war and like primary school in America is, you know, it kind of frames the French. And again, maybe my understanding and m- memory is off as just like more like trappers. There wasn't, they weren't as like settlement bound,
0: I guess. So I'll, as the I'll British, mention this but... in a minute. It, it's, it's in here, but, um, the British treated the native Americans as subjects. Mm-hmm. The French treated them as allies. Okay. So, yeah, I, I yeah exactly. When you watched like what was that movie with um, Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, yeah, the which French one are you're, like trash when you're talking. Yeah, about, I, I know yeah. exactly what you what you mean. But um, no, I mean the French. You know, I don't get into a lot of detail, and like I said, I don't just want to recount the war. But I mean, they had forts; they were well established in in, right. in Canada. Um, so the Abenakis lived in scattered bands of extended families for most of the year. Each man had different hunting territories inherited through their father, and unlike the Iroquois, the Abenaki were patrilineal. So they, you know, their, their lands were based on their father, and it was okay. a, it was a male lineage. Um, bands came together during the spring and summer <clears throat> at temporary villages near rivers or somewhere along the seacoast for planting and fishing. Uh, the villages occasionally had to be fortipo- fortified depending on alliances and enemies of other tribes or of europeans near the village Um, their villages were quite small when compared to those of the iroquois uh, and the average number of people was about a hundred so i mean i read a little bit you know it says they they crafted dome-shaped bark covered wigwams for housing and you know it's kind of what you think but When I get into, I I don't think I mentioned this here, but like St. Francis, when they raided, when the, when Rogers raided St. Francis, they were surprised that there were like houses. Right. It was like, it was, it was almost like a French or British settlement Mm -hmm. where they were living.
1: Well, I think that that was probably pretty common, right?
0: In terms of like, by this point, I think so. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, and these people coming in thinking that like, they're, like you said, quote unquote savages. And it's like, huh, this is civilization, quote unquote, right? Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. So during the time we are talking about, many of the Abenaki people had relocated to St. Francis. um, And this area possessed a justifiably fearsome reputation. So this is a quote. Where is this area on the map? I'm sorry. So it's it's south of Quebec and south of Montreal. It's kind of like near, um, like, it's like northern New York, Vermont area.
1: Okay. So it's on the U.S. side. Okay now
0: yeah so um the quote was for generations um okay this is a quote about saint francis for generations it had disgorged warriors whose raids had helped to check the no- northwards expansion of british's burgeoning colonies during a half a century of sporadic warfare the saint francis indians had torched countless frontier communities killed and scalped numerous men women and children and herded droves of shocked and bewildered captives back into canada in the eyes of the of their prey, they were a devilish crew, and their village was a pernicious nest. So it's important to take this into context. They killed to protect their lands, and in ways that may seem again barbaric to the Europeans, but again, it was kind of part of their culture. Right. I think I, I didn't I didn't write this, but uh, it, it was made clear in that book as well that mostly their killings were due again to protect their lands, but also as like if one of their wor- warriors was killed. They viewed that as a massive like affront to their people. And then and they wanted to take retribution on any of their warriors that were slain or any of their people that were slain.
1: And like, you know none of the expansion that I mean that, that I've read about, maybe it started somewhat under the guise of peacefulness, but like you're talking about probably a violent response to violence.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I get into it, but the, the British weren't exactly nice to these people. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like... And it's also important to remember that a century before this, like around the 1650s, and this isn't just the Apennines, but roughly 90% of indigenous peoples had, had succumbed to epidemic illness spread by the first European settlers and their African slaves. So you think about that, how big these nations were prior to the Europeans arriving. Oh, yeah. I mean, there 90% of their people died.
1: I mean, it's extreme genocide, mm-hmm. what happened.
0: Yeah. Okay, so despite the ferocious reputa- repu- uh, reputation of St. Francis, um, it was actually something of a refuge. And many Native Americans from the... Okay, I'm going to name a bunch of different do tribes your best, here. Steve. Just United. do your best. Sakakis, Kowasaks, Misakois... Winnipiseckis, Ossipes, Pennecooks, Pigwackets, Kennebecs, Andrew and Penneboskets, all called St. Francis' home. Okay. So y- you'd get a lot of people that were, if they were like disowned by their tribe or they were, you know, Refugees, they would go to St. Francis and and usually be welcomed.
1: No, it sounds like your description of like a
0: sanctuary city is pretty. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me a lot of on the big island in Hawaii, there's an area of refuge. Yeah, Yeah, I remember you talking about that. Where people could go. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminded me a lot of that. But as well as that, many captives brought to St. Francis ended up calling the place home and being adopted by the Abnakis. This included the chief of St. Francis, Joseph Louis Gill. He was the son of a captured New Englander, but he was adopted by the Abnakis and ended up becoming their chief. So, you know, they didn't really discriminate. They, they welcomed all peoples in. As long as you were willing to adopt their culture and their beliefs and, you know, their way of life, um, they were pretty welcoming. Right. Um, St. Francis was also home to a new France Jesuit mission. Um, the Jesuits were preferred to the Puritans by many indigenous Americans due to their bravery and unflinching attitude when faced with martyrdom. So one thing I read was that, like, Puritans would beg for their life. Oh, and yeah. this, like, insulted the Native Americans. They mm-hmm. they thought that you should die with, like, pride. But the Jesuits didn't flinch in the face of, like, being burnt alive or all this stuff, and, and they, they valued that.
1: They earned their respect in that sense.
0: Yeah, but also probably more importantly the jesuits did not force convert, converts to abandon all their customs customs and beliefs although they were baptized by the jesuits the so-called they called them mission indians mm-hmm. um, they were a, they were allowed to retain their cultural identity
1: okay i mean i guess it's a step right yeah
0: so the abenaki style of warfare was described by father rasles who was a jesuit He said that even a handful of their warriors were more formidable than a body of two or three hundred European soldiers. And this is a quote by him uh, about a... They didn't specify what battle it was, but it was uh, some battle. Our 250 warriors spread themselves over more than 20 leagues of country. And on 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 the appointed day, they made simultaneous attacks very early in the morning. In one single day, they ruined all the English. They killed more than 200 and took 150 prisoners. While on their side, only a few warriors were wounded, and these bit slightly. So these guys, I mean, you know, they had this reputation. They were pretty formidable.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's where ultimately warfare and technology are going to kind of turn the tide here, right? Yeah, I mean,
0: one thing that this book made clear is that they were pretty early adopters of not necessarily... European warfare, like they didn't line and discharge but the, tech, the technology, certainly yeah. like like guns, muskets, and things right. like that. Yeah. Um, another important point as to why the Native Americans decided to side with the French was that they were viewed as independent allies, not subjects. Like I mentioned before, Father Rollis, again, and this is another quote. It's not nice. There is not one savage tribe that will patiently endure to be regarded as under subjugation of any power whatsoever i mean it's not you know his his point there were a lot of native americans who fought with the british and they were treated as subjects but i'm sure they did things
1: for their own reasons at the time based on the calculus i mean and it's like i don't want to get ahead of it but you know you look at if we fast forward to the american revolution and i'm going to paint with a broad brush here and that like a lot of native americans sided with the british at that time yes right because it was in their interests because you know they had you know at least like kind of the view that britain was going to stall some of the expansion beyond like the current boundaries of yeah. the territory so like in that scenario maybe the calculus is all right well look the situation is this already this is probably our best way to try to stem the tide of losing our land and things like that so yeah. you know you know, you make those
0: decisions based on the calculus of the moment. I'm sure. You know, so the Abnaki's were interesting in the revolution. They were pretty fluid. Mm-hmm. They would kind of not necessarily commit to one side or the other during the Revolutionary War. They mm-hmm. were, I, I think, they were more supportive of the British at, for, at least at first because they again didn't want further colonial expansion into um, in, into their territories. But at the same time, they knew that. For them, either side was a losing battle, right? Right. They were pretty fluid. They kind of didn't commit either way. All right, so now to get on to Robert Rogers. So Rogers was an American frontier soldier who raised and commanded a militia force known as Rogers Rangers, which won wide repute during the French and Indian War. The Rangers were a unique corps of 600 frontiersmen who successfully adapted Indian techniques to their fighting. Rogers, Rangers emphasized self-sufficiency, courage, stealth, and method- methods of camouflage. Like, they didn't wear British uniforms, right? They yeah. they wore, a lot of them wore Native American dress.
1: Okay.
0: Um, they conducted numerous raids, scouting enemy positions, and they captured a lot of prisoners. Uh, they gained a reputation as the most colorful unit in the British American army, and they were viewed as a precursor to, like, Modern day special forces, particularly the Green Berets, who still read Rogers produced these like Ranger rules. Okay, and a lot of them were like, you have to be adaptable, you have to do all this stuff. And but so the Green Berets are seen as like they they come from these Rangers. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay.
1: So now I'm curious. Like, does this does his unit kind of come into play a little bit into the war? Because as far as I understand, like when the British came into this war initially and kind of deployed like these standard battle tactics of lining up and firing, they would just get shot from all different yeah. angles by, you know, so, a, an enemy that they couldn't see, right? I'll highlight so like, some of
0: this stuff, but yeah, um, when the British started losing, that's when they started using Rogers a lot more okay. to like scout. So, I mean, his first, and again, I don't go into this, but his first like bit of success and what kind of made him, Famous was he scouted Saint Francis and uh Ticonderaga.
1: Ticonderaga? yeah
0: t- yeah that one he scouted those and like gave really accurate um reports on how many troops there were, what kind of armament they had, and all this different stuff and and that was what kind of made him famous, and then they started using okay. him more, but there was still <clears throat> some opposition to it because the British were like, well, he's not a British officer, he's not a gentleman, you know like right. he's just this uncivilized guy that you know and and his rangers were supposed to be like unruly they drank a lot they did all this stuff yep. and so the you know didn't the stiff off lip british
1: <laughs> this is not how you do war exactly
0: so it's important to note here that the rangers were made up of a lot of colonial americans and many of these men valued the freedom and individualism that came with being a ranger um and you know that in my opinion is is a reason they adopted some of the you know native american techniques and and also like they were so similar mm. i mean it, it, it the hatred that comes out later is surprising because they obviously had a lot in common with these people right um but also a lot of indigenous allies of the british joined the rangers so there were a lot of mohicans and mohicans a lot of yeah. them fought with them okay So during the French and Indian War, Rogers took part in uh, General James Wolfe's expedition against Quebec and in the Montreal campaign of 1760, which is a little after what we're going to talk about. He was also sent by General Geoffrey Amherst to take possession of the Northwestern posts, including Detroit, and again in the West in 1763 during Pontiac's War, uh, and he participated in the Battle of the Bloody Bridge, Um. Soon after he went to England, and in 1765, published in London a concise. His book was called a concise account of North America, and then he also published his journals of service. Uh, his journals, sorry, and and they were about his service in the French and Indian War. It's in. So I'll get into this in a second. But like, so after all this, Rogers proposed to King George the Third that he le- that he lead an overland expedition to the Mississippi River, and to the and then. ...onward to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, His offer was refused, but he was given command of the Northwest Post of Michalinacic. And from there, in 1766, he sent out his own initiative, uh, on his own initiative, the first English expedition to explore the Upper Mississippi and the Great Lakes region. Uh, It failed to penetrate to the Pacific as he intended... And his ambitions caused him to be tried for treason. He had a long way to go. Yeah. (laughs) He was acquitted. Um, He then again went to England to retrieve his fortune, but was unsuccessful. During the American Revolution, he went to America, but he was regarded as a loyalist spy. Uh, He then openly joined the British and organized and commanded the Queens Rangers, um, which saw service and operations around New York city. Uh, Later he organized the Kings Rangers but the command was taken by his brother James Rogers and Robert Rogers returned to England where he lived his final years in obscurity. So, um... This couple, just sounds like a mercenary, man. Like, Yeah, and, and I think also, I haven't written it here, but uh, did you listen to the dollop about Benedict Arnold?
1: I listened to the first half.
0: So, the first half, right? I mean, like, the reason he did what he did was he didn't get paid and, like, all this bullshit. Right. Same thing with Rogers. Yeah. Like, they loved him, but then they just discarded him like a piece of trash right um and again he some of the shit he did was just disgusting but he is you know i I think there's an argument that he was just a pawn in this imperial machine and just got run over
1: that's what it sounds like to me i mean again it doesn't excuse like war crimes against like you know native people and things like that but when you analyze this place in like american and british history it sounds like, that. and I mean, Arnold was too, to some extent, Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, for all that they want to talk about, like
0: I mean, the if American it wasn't revolution, for him, Saratoga, like they would have lost like right. all that shit. He would, he was, he was key and he was treated so shittily that he was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. And like, but like for all they want to talk about, like, you know, Arnold as being like the supreme traitor in our history. And again, that just goes into mythologizing our history to begin with. Like yeah. not everyone was on board with the American Revolution. Right. In the colonies. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it was a very fluid
0: thing. Yeah. So again, I haven't written anything here, but I think it's important to note the growing importance of newspapers Mm -hmm. at this time. And the newspapers portrayed Rogers as this hero. They loved him. And that really fueled his ego and just, you know, made him really believe in kind of the myth behind all the things that he'd done. Right. Um, and it also influenced some generals and some leaders in the British army to kind of let him get away with some of the stuff. Like I mentioned that they probably wouldn't let a British officer get away with. Right. So, you know, you can talk about media today Mm -hmm. and all the bullshit that we have to deal with, but you know, it started a long time ago. Oh yeah. As
1: soon as they could print it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to run through, like, quickly some kind of key points of the French-Indian War and some dates, and I'll I'll mention how they kind of... I'll go into specifics about what led up to this raid, but I'll I'll just kind of go over this stuff quickly. So March 15th, 1744 to October uh, 1748 was King George's War, and this was a conflict over um, domination in North America, and it ended with no clear victor and the Treaty of... Aylas Chapel, Chapel. Um, seventeen fifty-two to seventeen fifty-three. Agitation grows. Tension between the French and the English over land and trading claims. There's some minor skirmishes. November to seventeen. November to December, seventeen fifty-three. George Washington carries Virginia's ultimatum over French encroachment to Captain Ligardou de Saint Pierre de at uh, Riviere Abou. It's a long name. Yeah, and he rejects it. May 1754, uh, Washington defeats the French in a surprise attack, and this is the first battle, and then he builds Fort Necessity. July 1754, the French take Fort Necessity. July 1754, Washington blames for the loss of Fort Necessity and resigns, and he later returns as a volunteer under British authority. Uh, June 1755, the British cede Acadia, which is Nova Scotia. July 1755, the Battle of the Wilderness. British General Braddock's forces are defeated near Fort Duquesne in Pennsylvania, uh, leaving the backwoods of British territory undefended.
1: That's the battle that I think about when I think about the British like kind of marching out
0: openly and yeah. getting fucking Braddock slaughtered. Braddock got fucking destroyed. Yeah, he got fucking killed, didn't he? Uh,
1: no, he loses. Or he got, he got wounded and lost his horse out from under him or something? yeah. yeah.
0: Um, July 1755, British uh, Colonel William Johnson arrives at the Great Carrying Place uh, to build a fortified storehouse. Work was already underway, led by Captain Rogers, uh, and Colonel Phineas Lyman takes over to complete construction of Fort Lyman, which would later become Fort Edward. August 1755, William Johnson arrives at lac Toussaint sacrament and renames it Lake George and begins work on a fort uh, fortification to be named Fort William Henry, which is important. Um, September 9th, 1755, William Johnson's forces are engaged in several battles. that would collectively be named the battle of Lake George. <clears throat> this would include, uh, the bloody morning scout, an ambush that resulted in the death of British Colonel Ephraim Williams and Mohawk King Hendrick. A later engagement would be called the Battle of Bloody Pond. Uh, Johnson's forces win the day by making him and, and made him the first British hero of the war. So May <clears throat> 1756, there were declarations of war, and it was the war was official between Great Britain and France. Um, August 14th, 1756, Fort Oswego. Uh, French capture the fort on the banks of the Great Lakes. March seventeen fifty seven, Saint Patrick's Day attack on Fort William Henry ends with French defeat. August third through the 9th, seventeen fifty seven, Fort William Henry, um the commander in chief of the French forces, uh Louis Joseph de Montcalm uh lays siege to Fort William Henry and Colonel Monroe surrendered it. So after this, this is important, this is th- this leads this is one of the main factors in, in what leads to this. Saint Francis um raid. And this was if you've seen Last of the Mohicans, uh it's it's kind of dramatized there. Okay. So the French agreed that the British could leave, you know, you know, it was all about like civility back then, right? So even the defeated forces they were allowed to leave in their colors and march out and and they as long as they surrendered their arms, as long as they, they were, were white free. and white, yeah. <laughs> um the Abenakis and the other Native American tribes that were allied with the French like, would not allow this because of the, yeah. the what they'd suffered. So they massacred a lot of the British. Right. And the British just... They were obviously pissed about this. Right? Yeah.
1: And that's like a difference in customs.
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah. So again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, they do not... From what I read, basically, when they fought... Even when they fought each other, the Native... There weren't a lot of casualties. There mm-hmm. were... you know. <laughs> because i probably because of the the weapons they use and other things you know there'd obviously be deaths, but there weren't they weren't as numerous yeah. so when they view it was like catastrophic when they lost a lot of warriors and they right. wanted revenge right, so that's why they did what they did after fort william Henry.
1: and just as this is kind of tangential, but to kind of frame this more broadly as like an imperial war, wasn't there fighting in india at this time as well british between, were fighting everywhere right, right. but like <laughs> uh, but between the french and the british specifically i thought that this c- kind of coincided with a broader war with i know, know that a, a broader global war in terms of the british fighting the yeah french i mean like in, over territories in india as well like in the time of like the east india company um and maybe maybe i'm confusing my timelines here a little bit and maybe that was more Corresponding to the actual American Revolution, but I just
0: that, yeah. I mean, the British, that... like, you know, part of this war, they like captured Guadalupe, okay, in the Caribbean, and like, okay, yeah. I mean, I think the British and the French were just like perpetually at war, right? Um, so 1758, General James Abercrombie and Lord Howe assemble a force of 16,000 men on the south shore of Lake George. On July 6th, the force arrived at the north end of the lake and proceeded to head to towards Fort... They called it Caleron. Uh, you called it... Teconderaga. Yeah, Teconderaga. That's what it, Yeah. So they attacked the fourth on, fort on July 8th, uh, taking a great number of casualties. The day ended in defeat for the British and a victory for Montcalm, defeating Corallon, um, and Lord Howe was killed. Uh, July twenty fifth, seventeen fifty eight, Louisbourg. The British seize uh, Louisbourg, and that opened the route to Canada. Sorry about all these dates. It's kind of no. i trying to run through
1: this. It's shit. helping the chronology. Uh,
0: August twenty seventh, seventeen fifty eight. The French surrender Fort uh, Frontenac on Lake Ontario, destroying their ability to communicate with their troops in the Ohio Valley. October twenty first, seventeen fifty eight. The British make peace with the Iroquois, uh, Shawnee, and Delaware Indians. Sorry for the word Indians there. Uh, November 25th, 1758, the British recapture Fort Duquesne and rename it Pittsburgh. Fort Pitt. May 1st, 1759, uh, the British capture the French island of Guadalupe in the Caribbean. Uh, June 25th, 1759, the British take Ticonderoga. Is that right? Yep. Okay, good. Uh, July 25th, 1759, they take Fort Niagara. Uh, the French abandon Crown Point and the British now control the entire Western frontier. Uh, September 13th, 1759, British win the Battle of Quebec. Montcalm and Wolfe, the commanding generals of both armies, both die in the battle. Okay. Uh, May 16th, 1760, the French siege of Quebec to try and reclaim it fails. Uh, September 8th, 1760, Montreal falls to the British. Uh, letters are signed finishing the surrender of Canada September 15th 1760 the functional end of the war the British flag flag is raved over raised over Detroit and that effectively ended the war 1761 the British make peace with the Cherokees September 18 1762 the French attempt to take Newfoundland and fail And February 10th, 1763, is a Treaty of Paris. All French possessions east of the Mississippi, except New Orleans, are given to the British. Uh, All French possessions west of the Mississippi are given to the Spanish. And the French regain Martinique, Guadeloupe, and St. Lucia. So it's kind of, you know, just a quick run-through of the French-Indian War. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about Amherst, Wolfe, and Kennedy. So following the failed attack of Fort Ticonderoga in 1758, General Abercrombie was replaced as head of the British forces by Geoffrey Amherst. This immediately paid off with his success with Amherst's success at Louisbourg. Following uh, this the British Prime Minister William Pitt encouraged a two-front attack on the French with Amherst attacking from Ticonderoga, which he'd retaken, and Brigadier General James Wolfe, who was described as a forceful and courageous officer and a commander guaranteed to lead from the front and prove relentless in pursuit of his objectives. Probably what led to his death.
1: Right. In Quebec. <laughs> I was wondering, did he die? <laughs> yeah.
0: So he was to attack Quebec in conjunction with the Royal Navy. So, as mentioned above, Wolf was successful, although he died during the assault. However, Amherst was slow to proceed with his attack. This was due to his cautious nature, weather, and issues with the sawmill at Ticonderoga that was producing the timber for the boats required. It's like, I couldn't get over this fact that, like, how many boats they used to go across Lake George. Like, I know the lakes are huge, but, like, there were so many... They all use boats to get across this stuff. But, you
1: yeah, know. I guess it's stuff you don't really think about. Right. Though. Now when you just you take actually a highway. Stop and think, yeah. yeah.
0: So Amherst was also unaware of Wolfe's victory and he was desperate for information. So, like, he, you know, they, they're trying to have this two front war and he needs to know that Quebec's been taken so that he right. can pr- proceed with confidence. It was also supposed to separate the French forces. Mm hmm. So, but, like,
1: driving w- driving a wedge between, like, the north and the western. Yeah. Okay.
0: And so, like, when you think about it, right, it's not like you can, excuse me, not like you can text somebody and be like, right. hey, man. Like hey, we, man, we fucked him up won. up here. Yeah. <laughs> so, he's desperate for formation. So, uh, so, to communicate with Wolf, Amherst dispatched Ensign Hutchins to tell Wolf of their victories and to report back with news of how they were, how the uh, attack on Quebec was going. However, due to enemy patrols, distance, and weather, this took too long for Amherst. And because of this, he sent uh, Captain Quentin Kennedy with a dispatch for Wolf, instructions for the British Eastern Native American allies, and also with a bribe for the Abnakis. Okay. So the bribe was basically like, it, it said, the way Amherst described it was like, if they sit on their tails, we'll leave them alone. So okay. he was like, we just want them to sit this out. We right. don't want them to take part. And all this, you know, we just don't do anything and and we'll leave you guys alone. So an important point of this is um, Kennedy was to do this undercover. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't wearing a uniform. It was just like he was a guy walking through and and doing this stuff. Right. But he was captured by the Abnakis near St. Francis and he was taken as prisoner. So they were viewed as spies. And in the eyes of the French, they could be hung because this was a war crime at the time. Right. You couldn't have spies. Um. Or it wasn't gentlemanly to have spies, right? right. So, so, so um,
1: either side would have hung a spy that they caught. Yes. Yeah.
0: So again, as was tradition at the time, if you took an officer, they were to, to as long as they surrendered their arms, they were to be allowed to leave you know, peacefully and, and, and whatever. The Abenakis burned them? <laughs> no, they didn't burn them, but they were taken um, captive. And and Kennedy was with I forget how many, but he was with a lot of uh, Mohican comrades, so Native Americans as well. They were taken captive, and they were transported into Canada, and they were clasped in irons. So Kennedy was made to wear, you know, oh. handcuffs or whatever. But then he was as soon as the French realized this, they let they they, they kind of freed him, and he was fr- he was a prisoner, but he was free, right? Okay. The same was not given to the Native American allies. They were they were left under the deck of this boat that took them up north, and they were just left there. Oh, They shit. didn't die, but you know they, yeah. they weren't given the free Different treatment. Yeah. But Amherst was furious that this was done to them. He, that he, they were clasped in irons? Yeah, he, he oh thought that God. this was like an affront and not given the fair treatment of English gentlemen and officers. Snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, this affront in Amherst's eyes, coupled with the massacre following the capture of Fort William Henry, was enough to compel Amherst to authorize the raid on St. Francis. Okay. So I'll get into like this oh, right now. So, on, this, on the 13th of September, 1759, Rogers received his, re- his orders from Amherst, and this is what they were. This is a quote. You are this night to set out with a detachment as ordered yesterday of 200 men, which you will take under your command and proceed to the Missaquay Bay, from whence you will march and attack the enemy settlements on the south side of the river lawrence in such a manager, in such a manner as you shall judge most effectual to disgrace the enemy and for the success and honor of his majesty's arms remember the barbarities that have been committed by the enemy's indian scoundrels on every occasion where they had an opportunity of showing their infamous infamous cruelties on the king's subjects which they have done without mercy take your revenge but don't forget that though those villains have dastardly and promiscuously murdered the women and children of all ages it is my orders that no women and children are killed or hurt so you know like, in my opinion it, it's pretty contradictory yeah and and it and it leaves a lot to interpretation
1: 100% like with everything that we've talked about like yeah. where the, the boots on the ground get and the order
0: Great. i think and i think brumwell thought as well Amherst only wrote this, so there was a record of him saying, don't hurt women and children. He right. didn't really believe that. Yeah. He was like, do what you need to do.
1: But like, know that I told you not to do it in case. Like, so right. he was doing a little CYA. Yeah. A little cover your ass. Exactly,
0: yeah. So around 5 a.m. on the 4th of October, 1759, Rogers ordered the attack. And this is another quote. The consequences were all too predictable. The well-disciplined assault swiftly degenerated into an uncontrolled massacre. As one English newspaper noted, orders were to spare all women and children, but they were little attended to. Driven by a mixture of adrenaline and bloodlust, the raiders were not in a merciful mood. Those who fled were shot and the village was torched, even with people in some of the buildings. Um, So that's the end of the quote. The rangers also stole and took scalps. Uh, Rogers claimed they killed over 200, but the number was actually closer to 30. But approximately two-thirds of the 30 were women and children. They also took six prisoners, including the wife and two sons of the chief, Louis, uh, Joseph Louis Gill. Um, as they fled the slaughter, the rangers were hampered by freezing temperatures, difficult terrain, and pursuing enemy forces. Many starved, and they resorted to cannibalism. One of the victims was the chief's wife, who despite being a prisoner, and she had helped... captors forage for food and you know so they resorted to cannibalism right i mean it's pretty terrible i don't want to pretend i've ever i I, i've ever been in a situation where i'm starving so i don't know what i would do yeah but to the native americans like cannibalism is less than human like once you do that that there's no coming back from that As well die and they can do whatever they want to you basically you know that was like the worst thing you could do in their eyes yeah um what rogers didn't know was that prior to the raid the french had called all fighting aged Abenaki warriors away from saint francis to set up an ambush for rogers they had just gotten the location wrong so basically they'd Set up an ambush, but they'd set it up where they'd caught Kennedy because they thought Rogers would follow the same path, right? And he deviated another way and just ended up slaughtering. Or you so know. it was just yeah. There were no warriors there. So like when they so he said he killed two hundred. That you know a lot of people say that that's part of Rogers' exaggeration of like what he always did, but you know it may be that like he had scouted the village and that was how many people lived there. So that's what he thought he'd killed. But in actuality, the majority of the villagers gone. Oh God! Um, also, um, which is, this is another point that like saved a lot of people was the night prior to the attack. Saint Francis had been celebrating. Well, sorry, this isn't the part. <clears throat> but this Saint Francis had been celebrating a likely wedding. Um, Rogers described it as like a war dance, and that they were all drunk. Mm-hmm. But uh, from what I read of like French accounts. And, you know, Abenaki oral history was it was more likely a wedding. Uh So that those that remained in the village weren't in fighting shape. But more importantly, and like, this is kind of interesting. um, The slaughter would have been worse, but the night before the raid, during the celebrations, one of Roger's Mohican rangers snuck away, went to the village, and warned them that it was coming. Nice. So, you know, again, these are um, probably adversarial tribes. Yeah. But there's still some solidarity there with, yeah, like the, like the recognition indigenous people. This isn't, yeah. this isn't right, right. Um, so you know, I could go into detail about the pursuit of Rogers. Like he had a, a a really, it was. They had completely run out of provisions by the time they got to the thing, and they were almost starving when they got to St. Francis. Then they did the raid; they stole what corn they could, right? And then they went back. Um, but still, like. They had a really difficult time getting back, like a lot of people went insane from starvation. As I say said a lot of people starved. They resorted to cannibalism. It was very difficult for them to get back. Um, but you know, some were caught, some were killed, they were killed pretty horribly as you can imagine. Yeah. Like, especially mean, when they found human flesh in their bags. The Native Americans didn't have a lot of sympathy for these people. Yeah, I, mean, I, wouldn't I wouldn't either fucking I wouldn't either. Exactly. Yeah. Um I don't, you know, I don't think the details of this matter. You tracked all this
1: way just to slaughter our women and children. Yeah. Like, sorry. And like, (laughs) I don't care what your orders were. Like, that's what you did. Right.
0: Yeah. So, you know, my questions are more about like, what drove the hatred of these like conquered peoples, right? Yeah. So I got like the Rangers. They valued independence. They mirrored the fighting style of the Native Americans. So were they just like tools? I mean you go through and they, and they say like in Rogers' accounts they he claims they walked into this into St. Francis and there were 600 english scalps floating mm-hmm. in the wind first of all how do they know they were english scalps right <laughs> and is again this is just an exaggeration so were these people just like imperial tools again and and just driven by the hatred of like the increasing press and the press um you know obviously denigrating the indigenous peoples and especially the Abenakis. The Abenakis had this ferocious... Th- th- there was one account I read um, by this woman who... There was this thing called... I think it was called like Camp 4 or something. Camp Camp something 4. And it was basically like a, a settlement of mm-hmm. of British colonial settlers. And she was... Her family was taken captive by the Abenakis. And like she was terrified because everything she'd read about them and heard about them was they, they were these quote-unquote, savages who were just going to butcher them. She was like, we could not believe how well we were treated by these people. They were taken, and part of it was they weren't the butchers they were portrayed to be, but also, you know, you have to acknowledge that part of it was they knew they could sell them to the French for a decent amount of money as slaves.
1: But, you know, there are tons of accounts, even in different parts of the colonies, of people, you know, getting lost, or, you know, turning to... You know, basically falling into situations such that they were part of like a tribe, and it actually working out pretty well. I mean, again, it's not like you can't categorically state that and things like that, but I think there is a lot of merit to this idea that once people came in and kind of uh, assimilated into that way of life, that
0: they were treated pretty well. Pretty well, you know. Yeah. So, like the other questions on this is like the British opinions of indigenous people, right? And it was. Definitely worse than the French. Amherst hated Native yeah. Americans. He hated the fact he had to fight with them. He just viewed them as savages and, you know, he despised them. I think,
1: the, I mean, but I think the entire ideology that allowed for such a violent expansion westward was predicated upon a view of indigenous people similar to, you know, black people. Black slaves that were brought over yeah. as subhumans, right? Right. Like, how could oh, no you? No question. How could you? And again, this is like kind of like probably the genesis of that. But again, I think it goes into, and I think it ties into your question a little bit, which we should get back to. But that whole idea is predicated upon and it's built upon, even in like the minds of like, you know, quote unquote, like average people in the colonies that like these are subhumans so they can be treated as such.
0: Yeah. And, and, what surprises me there is like the rangers obviously didn't view them like that right and a lot of and you know from what i read a lot of colonials again when you you know i've 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 listened to this study where you know americans hate socialism right yeah Sadly. and a lot of that is due to basically the majority of people that came here were the most individualistic of all the yeah, Europeans. Yeah, like the Scotch-Irish like, yeah.
1: individualistic. And so they valued Puritan, that. And they yeah.
0: valued that in the Native Americans, a lot of the colonials. Like the mm-hmm. British were just the British. They, you know, again, viewed them as savages and all this stuff. But I think there was a respect and a admiration by the more colonial and, and certainly more adventurous colonials. Um, and when I say colonials, I just mean like settlers yeah. you know, that they, they came here. Towards the towards the indigenous people and 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 that's why it kind of surprised me, especially the Rogers that they were so brutal. Yeah. But again, it's just like, again, bloodlust and all this stuff. I think gets up and.
1: Well, and I think ultimately, like I see your <clears throat> point about how that may have created some kind of identification with that way of life and things like that. But I do think that there were one like probably more communal bounds within like our communal kind of practices within those communities not yeah. again i don't want to paint with a broad brush that probably was a little bit foreign and then especially but that individualistic drive for private property yeah. that ultimately was kind of weaponized yeah you know what i mean in terms of the expansion i think was ultimately just a more powerful driving force right than any kind of identification that they had because as, as, you know, as the tide kind of grew with more and more people coming over, you know, the, the drive for land and private property and expansion I think would have subsumed any kind of respect yeah. or cons- consumed any kind of respect fair. that they had. Yeah. And especially when you had that, that ideology of inferior- inferiority that you could have applied to these people who were different.
0: Right. (laughs) You know, we hate different people. Yep. So the next kind of question I've got is like the French opinions of indigenous people. And again, I I think they were more sympathetic and, 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 you know, certainly better than the British, but they were still, they were still pretty fucking bad. Like, and they, they certainly didn't think of <clears throat> the Abenaki's best interest. It was all about protecting their interests, right? right? For sure. So, you know, they knew this raid on St. Francis was coming. They didn't leave any warriors back to defend the village. They just, you know, left them. But anyway. Yeah. And then the the last point I have is like the fate of Rogers, which we've talked about. And like, you know, the similarities with Benedict Arnold, if he had known what was going to happen to him, would he have agreed to this stuff? I, like, You know, maybe he would have, but I kind of doubt it. Like, he was discarded by the British just like so many other people.
1: Yeah. But again, you're talking about in the context of like the plight of native people, that's a very selfish selfish decision one way or the other. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, he clearly had no, I mean, from what you've said, no sympathy with the native people that would have made him change his mind if events had gone one way or the other, you know? Yeah, you're probably right. I just you but know. I do think from what you've said that and again, this goes into the conversation. I know we touched on this like in like when we talked about Vietnam briefly. I know we didn't do a podcast on it yet, but just you know it's hard to it's hard to pin blame on individuals just as much as it's hard to give like credit to like quote unquote great man in the hi- in history you know what I mean yeah, there's much broader forces at work, yeah, you know, so while like the guy would be applauded if he had you know, chosen a different course and things like that. He probably was just a soldier caught up in the machine that was growing at that time. Yeah. You know? So like, you know, fuck his decisions and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it it is hard to, you know, just analyze that person without taking into account the societal forces that were growing at that time. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: So like, you know, I, I kinda say here, you know, I, I don't have answers to these questions, um, other than it's just another example of oppression by an imperial master. Um <clears throat> and kind of finally I wanna make this point. So you know, unfortunately the US war for independence as a as a kind of English joke, I the war of Yankee aggression <laughs> was not the end of suffering for the indigenous peoples of this nation. Um so in closing I think it's important to read a statement by the Abenaki people. And it's a long statement, but I, I think it's, it, it is important. <clears throat> so here's the statement. The indigenous Abenaki people of the Northeast have for generations been subjected to both genocidal attacks and ethnocidal attacks, which is their de- they define as the killing of culture, by colonial settlers and their descendants, in the colonial era, these threats took the form of murderous attacks on families and villages in wartime. In the modern era, these threats have included eugenic sterilization, forced separation of children and families, misrepresentations of history, and others attacks that, you, that the United Nations classify as ethnocide. By definition, ethnocide includes both a mental element, the, the intent to destroy, and a physical element. ...when perpetrators deliberately take actions to cause serious bodily or mental harm. In response to these attacks, Abenaki people were forced to fight, flee, or assimilate to survive. Some families relocated northward to present-day Quebec, others remained in present-day New England. Knowing this history, we, re- we recognize and respect the presence and sovereignty of Abenaki citizens... ...of the Abenac and Wollanak First Nations in Quebec... We also recognize and respect the sovereignty of our Abenaki neighboring nations throughout our territories, who, despite centuries of challenges, are actively seeking to reconcile with the colonial settler communities around them. We are not in competition with any of these peoples, and we welcome peaceful interactions with all of them, provided there is mutual respect. As a sovereign nation ourselves, we will always assert our rights to support our citizens wherever they choose to reside. We will continue working for the benefit of Nohagan citizens and all Abenaki people while educating the communities in which they live. We must do this for the survival and security of our tribe and for the next generations to come. In 2011 and 2012, under subdivisions 110 of Vermont statute No. 107, quote, an act relating to the state recognition of Native American Indian tribes in Vermont, the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs, the Vermont State Legislature, and the government of, of Vermont formally acknowledged the state-to-state status of the Mississaquah, Nohegan, Coas, and Elnu Abnaki tribes. More than half a century of efforts by innumerable, by innumerable Abenaki tribal leaders, along with both native and non-native researchers, served to verify the evidence of Abnaki continuance. Yet our claims to homeland, ancestry, and our very existence are constantly under attack by cyberstalkers and scholars who allege that we do not exist for their own purposes. Sadly, we find it necessary in this time of increasing hate speech, cyberstalking, lateral violence, slander, bad jacketing, and other forms of, har- of harassment to name this invasive, unethical, and prejudicial research as ethnocide. Harassment conducted via the internet does not constitute research. It is a federal crime classified as malicious cyber activity. We reject the use of racially biased, defamatory, abusive, profane, threatening, and or offensive discourse about ourselves or any other indigenous people. We do not condone and we will not participate in research that violates professional standards of ethical conduct and informed consent. And at the very least, researchers must proceed with integrity, fairness, and respect while explicitly avoiding, denigrating, or in any way jeopardizing the health and welfare of their research subjects. Native American and First Nation histories, kinship networks, and political relationships are complicated. No individual or agency holds the authority to validate family histories or dictate what exactly constitutes indigenous identity. Under the precepts of tribal um, sovereignty in the United States, federally recognized and state-recognized tribal nations hold the sovereign right to govern themselves, to dictate their own membership requirements, and to enact legislation or other programs to protect themselves and their culture. No tribal nation holds the inherent right to dictate the citizenship of any other tribal nation or to direct research against any other nation without their consent. Thus, with all this in mind, we suggest that anyone interested in our history or in the history of any indigenous nation should should consult with reputable researchers and tribal scholars who have trusting relationships with that particular nation. End of statement. It's sad that we have to read that, but I I think it's it's very important.
1: No, I'm glad you read that. I mean, I just, I don't even, I'm trying to think about where to, where to start with that in terms of like my comments on it. The first thing that I can think of is that it's very important that again, we recognize that the effects of an event like you talked about today are part of a much broader narrative in history yeah. that still have huge implications on people today, right? Yeah. And the ideologies and motives that precipitated an event like that are still present and they're leading to the subjugation and basically continuation of an ethnocide against these same people that are trying to cling on to their heritage and maintain some semblance of sovereignty. Right. In the face of extreme <clears> violence. <throat> and I mean violence. I don't mean when I say violence not I don't necessarily mean physical. Just not me. necessarily physical. I mean, you know, cultural violence. I mean economic violence. Yeah. You know, violence against a historic and cultural way of living you know, and that precipitates on and to make a statement like that, you can see that they're addressing violence even in cyberspace. Right. So.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's sad that we have to make these statements, but I, like you said, they are important. And I think it's the right way to close this. Um, and you know, I think again, I'm a white guy. Um, I tried to interpret this as, as sympathetically and as um, accurately as I possibly could. Um, But uh, if any Abnaki citizen were to hear this and, and would like to clarify or, you know, correct us on anything, I'd be more than happy to, you know, we would, we would certainly welcome having conversations and, and getting their side of the story. Because again, we're just two white dudes telling a story here. And, um, we, we would like, uh, appropriate cultural cultural representation of of any story that we tell
1: absolutely no like obviously we're extremely sympathetic to that and are again are just trying to do i think our part to combat those histories which only serve to erase the history and to glorify
0: this you know again you know rogers you know maybe he was just a he was an imperial pawn but again if, if you look at most things it just glorifies this guy and and what he did and that is ignoring a whole nation of people and and that's not accurate so not a very positive end it wasn't quite as funny as the last one that i did but uh you know it', was, it was, it's just another example of, of of an of the oppression and i think we're going to come back to this again and again. Imperialism just, it just oppresses indigenous peoples.
1: Yeah. No. And then especially at a time when, you know, we're talking about land preservation and climate change and things like that. And we've got, you know, nations of people that could really help us in terms of preserving the land with, yes. tr- with traditional ways of, you know, working and sustaining and things like that. And obviously, you know, Things have progressed a long way since then and things like that. But like, you know, instead of, you know, listening and working and working, we're trying to fucking put pipelines. Right. Through through, their land. You know what I mean? Yeah. Through what little shreds and scraps of land of which everything belonged to them communally. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, and (laughs) we're we're, we're trying to take that still. So it's got to stop.
0: Agreed. All right. Well. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, let us know if you have any
1: thoughts. Interventionpod at gmail.com.
0: And if you shoot us an email, we'll shout you out in our next episode. Thanks.